Does your life cause other people to think about God? I mean, when other people look at how you try to live your life, the places you go, the things you do, the things you say, do they see Christian qualities in you? Even if the other people themselves are not saved, if they're not Christian people, can they look at your life and see something that is different from their lives? Can they see something in you that would make them desire a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? There's an interesting verse in the New Testament. In, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, the Bible says that we should always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us. And so the Bible assumes that if we are walking with God, if we're living right, if we're filled with the Spirit, that other people will look at our lives and they will ask us what the secret is. They'll ask us, how do you seem to always be so happy? Or how is it that you seem to always have peace in your life, even when you go through difficult times? Or how, how do you seem to be so filled with joy? Or how do you have such confidence when you face the future and all the uncertainties in life? And so they may not know that it's God at all. They may have no idea who Jesus Christ is. But other people should be able to look at our lives and see something that's different, and that difference should make them want what we have, and what we have, of course, is Jesus Christ living in our hearts. And so the question I'm raising today is simply this. Does your life make other people think about God? Now, as you think about that question and try to answer it, let me ask you another question that will shed even more light on this subject. When is the last time another person asked you a spiritual question. When is the last time another person asked you a spiritual question? In other words, sometimes a non-Christian doesn't even know how to ask us what we would consider to be the right question. They don't, they're not going to probably come up and say, can you please tell me how to be saved or could you tell me how I can go to heaven? But they might come up and ask us a question about the Bible or about God. I know that I was in a restaurant not too many weeks ago and one of the waitresses in that restaurant uh, came up and she said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I said, no, not at all. And she said, are God and Jesus the same person? And so that's a tough question to answer. And I've, I've tried my best to, to answer that question for her. But the point is, I eat in that restaurant a lot. And and uh, she knows that I'm a minister. She knows that I work on a church staff. And so she felt comfortable asking me that question. I wish I could tell you that that happened more often. It should. Even people that don't know that I'm a minister, they should be able to come up to me and ask me some kind of a spiritual question simply because they see something in me that they want uh, in their own lives. And it does happen some, but it doesn't happen as much as I wish it did. And that just lets me know that I need to be more full of the Spirit. I need to live closer to God so that other people would see in me uh, what they want in their own lives. My name's John Redmond, and I'm the associate pastor at First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. And today on Peace by Believing, we're going to be talking about how we can be spiritual magnets 
for other people, how we can live our lives in such a way that people who don't know Jesus Christ personally would be attracted to the Jesus they see living in us. And so if you have your Bible today, I would invite you to open it to the book of Acts chapter number 22. Acts chapter number 22, we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture in the book of Acts, but we'll begin there. And we're going to be thinking today about a man named Stephen, who was a spiritual magnet for a man named Saul of Tarsus. And this Saul of Tarsus went on to become a Christian, and his name was changed to Paul. He became the great Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, the most influential Christian who ever lived. And yet, as Paul was reflecting on his own salvation experience and what it was that God used to bring him to saving faith in Jesus Christ, one of the things that God used was the life of a man named Stephen. Stephen had a profound impact on Saul's life and Stephen became a spiritual magnet for him. And so today in the message, we're going to be thinking about how we, like Stephen, can be spiritual magnets for others. In Acts chapter 22, the apostle Paul, now he is Paul, now he is saved, and he is explaining his salvation experience. He is telling what happened to him on the Damascus road, and he's giving us a review of that. But as soon as he gets finished telling about his encounter with Christ on the Damascus road, in verse 20, he starts talking about Stephen. And he says, And when the blood of your, serv- of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And so, what's... what's Paul is saying here is, as I reflect on my salvation experience, as I look back on what happened to me on the Damascus Road, I have to be reminded of the inner struggle that I was having. I was kicking against the goad. Something was convicting my conscience. We wonder what was that something. Well, here he tells us he's still thinking about Stephen. And he's saying, I was there when those stones were thrown at him. I was there when his blood was shed. And so in Paul's mind, he cannot think about his own salvation experience without thinking about Stephen. This spiritual magnet whom God used in an unbelievable way to draw him to Jesus Christ. And so, Stephen was a spiritual magnet. Now, what I want us to think about today is simply this. What was it in Stephen that God used to get Saul's attention? To convict him, to make him think about or to rethink about the person of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to mention some things, and I wish you would jot some of these things in your outline. First of all, it was his countenance. It was his countenance. There was something on Stephen's face, his countenance, his demeanor, that made an impression on Saul. You say, well, John, what was it? Well, go back again to Acts chapter 6. I'll show you exactly what it was. Because in Acts chapter 6, as we are being introduced to this man, Stephen, we've already read that he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Look in verse number 8. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders among all the people. So this man 
had, he had the power of God on his life. Well, beginning in verse 9, there was a group of non-Christians who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and they began to question Stephen, they began to dispute with Stephen, and they began to accuse in an attempt to undermine his credibility and his authority, they began to make up things about Stephen that were not anywhere near true. And as they were making all these changes and, or, or these charges and allegations, look in verse 15 at what it says. It says, all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, that is, at Stephen, saw his face, now watch this, as the face of an angel. In other words, his face had certain angelic qualities about it. Pastor John MacArthur says, commenting on this verse, he says of Stephen's face, it was pure, it was calm, he had an unruffled composure, he was reflecting the presence of God. And so this is a tremendous thing because see, Saul was standing there looking at this. He was watching all these accusations be made against Stephen and he noticed Stephen didn't defend himself, Stephen didn't strike back, Stephen didn't, any of that. He just sat there calmly, peacefully, and his face was like the face of an angel, which says this to me, we should never underestimate the the power of our own countenance. We should never underestimate the, the, the power of a warm personality and of a smile. I was coming to church this morning and I had the radio on and, and uh, they were talking about, and I didn't even know we had this in our country, but there is such a thing called National Smile Day. Did you, have you even heard of it? National Smile Day. And it's going to be this year on October the 16th. I mean, October the 6th. So it's seven months away. So I thought what we might should do today is practice for National Smile Day. Would you turn to the person next to you and give them... Now, it can't be fake. It's got to be real. None of that like that. Give them your best, very best smile right now. You're practicing for National, National Smile Day. And somebody said cheese. Okay, that's good. They're taking a picture. Well, the thing is, you should never underestimate. I'm not saying that Stephen was smiling. I don't know if he was smiling or not. I, don't, I can tell you this, he wasn't frowning. Angels don't frown. Angels don't make mean faces. He had a pleasant demeanor, and there was something about that pleasant demeanor that, uh, that made an impact on Saul's life. Never underestimate your own demeanor and your own smile and the own, your own countenance and the warmth of your personality. Uh, Stephen certainly had that. The second thing that, about Stephen that I think God used to convict Saul was his confidence. You know, there's something about a person who's confident that makes people want to follow that person. You don't want to follow somebody if they don't know where they're going or they don't know what they believe. But in Acts chapter 7, go back, let me show you something of... Stephen's confidence. Because after he had been accused and brought before the council, it's kind of like he's on trial. The leaders in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, Are these things so? So now Stephen is on trial. And in verse 2, he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. So he's standing, I mean, here he is in front of all these religious leaders, and he says, Listen to me. And in Acts chapter 7, I read it again yesterday, you should read this chapter sometime, if you want the entire history of the nation of Israel, you have it in one chapter. 
And he, he told them that. Cha- so as he's telling this history of his own nation, he's doing it with confidence. What is he communicating? What do we know about Stephen? He knew who he was. He knew where he was from. He knew where he was going. And he knew how to handle opposition, adversity, and tough times as he's clearly on trial. And he's handling that with confidence and with grace. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 7... To show you the source of his confidence, in verse number 59, it says, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. His confidence, it wasn't arrogance. Nobody likes an arrogant person. But it was confidence in Jesus Christ that he knew that he was his Savior and that God was in control of his life. And so there's something about confidence that we should have. And then the third thing that Stephen had, he had compassion. He was not a mean-spirited person. Look back in, in, you're in Acts 7, look in verse 60. It says, then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice and he said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. So as he's being stoned, He's dying like Jesus was dying. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen said, Lord Jesus, don't don't hold this against them. You know, many of us would have been saying, Lord, you see what they're doing? Strike them dead. But not Stephen, because he had compassion. And there's something about compassion. You know, this is a, how do I say? This can be a missing quality in the lives of Christian people. So many of us have such conviction and we have such strong beliefs that sometimes we're lacking a little bit in compassion and sometimes our strong beliefs cause us to come across to unsaved people as condescending, judgmental, holier than thou. And the bottom line of that is, if we have that type of attitude, we never will lead many people to Jesus Christ because people are drawn to a compassionate person. This past Sunday night, of course, we had Bill Gaither and the Gaither Vocal Band here and, and others from that group, and it was a wonderful night. Uh, whether you like that kind of music or the newer kind of music, I'm blessed. I like them both. I've been with the Breaking Free Kids all weekend. They're not singing Gaither music in there, I can tell you that. But I love what they sing, and I love what Gaither sings. It never has been. I like, if it's about Jesus, I like it, and I can worship with any of it. But after the service last Sunday night, we got to spend a few minutes with Bill Gaither. And I was just asking him, Dad and I both, some questions. And I said to him, you're 80 years old. You're almost 81. You're on the road a lot. You're still serving the Lord. But you have such a freshness in your spirit. I said, what, how, is this, how are you so happy? That's really what I asked him. And, of course, he was attributing that to the Lord. But he said, you know, one of the things that kind of fires me up He said, I kind of get fired up when I'm around somebody who either is not saved or they just got saved, and they're a little rough around the edges. But but they don't want to cuss, and they don't want to do anything wrong, but they're just so new to the Christian faith. He said, it's just real. I thought, what a refreshing spirit, the compassion. I was so moved. I got to spend 20 minutes with with, uh, Bill Gaither. And later in the week, I was so moved by the person of Bill Gaither, his countenance, that I went home in my prayer journal and I wrote 16 things that God taught me 
from that man's life about God and about life and about ministry and about people. It's been an incredible influence on me. And so what I'm saying is we need to be a little less judgmental and we need to be filled with compassion and redemption for other people. If I can get a good amen for that, would you go ahead and say it right now? It's true. It is so true. And that's one of the things our church has. One of the families that joined in the first service, they said, you know what we like about this church? Everybody is friendly. Everybody is kind. We've been made to feel welcome and accepted, and that's why we're here. But the fourth and final thing I want to show you about Stephen that made him a spiritual magnet for Saul, it was indeed his conviction. He was, now, he had compassion, but he also had his convictions. So much so that when he saw that his convictions were about to cost him his life, and he was about to be stoned, that he didn't back down from his convictions. See, that's what, I'm not just saying that we have convictions. I'm saying that God wants us to stand for our convictions even when it cost us something. And Stephen did that, and Saul was watching, and it impacted Saul's life. I heard a story that many of you are familiar with if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire about a man named Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell was a Scottish young man. He his family, his parents were from Scotland. They had actually gone to be missionaries in China. He was actually born in China, but he was still Scottish. And he was a tremendous athlete, born in 1902. Such a good athlete that he qualified for the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris, France. His best race was a 100-meter dash. He could blow anybody off the track in a 100-meter dash. And he had won that race so many times, and now that he's in the Olympics, the people in Scotland were thinking, finally, a gold medal is coming to our country. And they were so proud of their runner, Eric Liddell. But when the Olympic Committee set the dates for the races, they scheduled the 100 meters to be run on a Sunday. On a Sunday. Now, in the day in which we live, you might be sitting there saying, what's the big deal about that? Run the race on a Sunday. Who's running even back? Eric Liddell had a conviction that for him, it was wrong to run on a Sunday because Sunday is the Lord's day. And by the way, that's a whole other sermon for another day, but how far we have fallen from that conviction. He wasn't even running the Olympics on a Sunday, a 10-second race. He pulled out of the race. He said to the committee, I can't do it. It's a violation of my conscience. I don't judge others for doing it. I'm telling you, I can't do it. It is the Lord's day. I must be in church on Sunday, not out running some race. The people in Scotland were devastated. They thought our only hope for a gold medal was with him running the hundred. He never loses. Now he's pulled himself out. But he also had another race that he ran, the 400 meters. He was not as good in the 400 meters as he had been in the 100 meters. Never had anywhere near the success but he began to train for that, and he amazingly qualified for the finals in the Olympics, and yet nobody expected him to win the 400 meters. If you have ever run track, and I have, I have run the 400-meter race. Now, it's been a long time when I was their age. I wouldn't do it today, but I used to, I've run the 400. I think, personally, it's the hardest race in all of track. And the reason is, you virtually have to sprint the whole race. Sprinting 100 meters or 200 meters is not that hard. Sprinting 400 meters. Now, if you've run the race, you're sitting there thinking, John, technically you're not supposed to sprint the whole race. You sprint the first turn. You're 90% on that long stretch. 
you sprint the second turn, and on the back stretch, you're going at about 95%. Nobody sprints the 400 meters, not even in the Olympics. Eric Liddell was in the race. He was in lane seven, which you know anything about track, you know that's the outside lane, which means it's staggered to make up for the space. So if you're in the seventh lane, you start out in front of everybody, but they're going to catch you on the two curves. And if you're in the seventh lane, you can't see how you're doing with your competition because you don't have anybody on the outside. Where The best lane is the fourth lane. Third or fourth lane is where you'd want to be in a race. He's in the seventh lane. And so when they fired the gun, he did what the other racers did. He sprinted the first curve when they got to the straightaway and the others said you know we're going to take it back down to 90 percent Liddell said I can't tell because I'm in the seventh lane we're just now coming to the stretch I can't tell where I am I'm going to sprint this one he sprint that straight got to the curve he did they all sprint the curve and he got to the back stretch where he was headed home and he was he could tell he was in contention but still, since he had come off that seventh lane, he didn't know. He said to himself, what I have to do is to play like I didn't run the first 300 meters. I'm now running the 100-meter dash. This is my race. I've got to run. I've got to sprint it all the way in. And so, by the grace of God, he was able to sprint that race. And he was able to run it, and he was able not only to finish it, he was able to win it, he was able to win a gold medal, and not only that, he was able to set a new world record in the 400-meter dash, far eclipsing any time he had ever run. It's interesting, before he ran that race, you know, if you follow track, you know they have coaches and uh, folks that give them a little massage before the run, and one of the people who had kind of helped loosen him up for that race... Right before he got into the, getting in, into lane seven for that race, he handed him a folded up piece of paper. And this trainer said, Eric, I've been watching you and following your career. And when you pulled out of the 100 meter dash, we were all so devastated by that. But now that I know it's because of your faith in Jesus Christ, I just have such respect for you standing up for your convictions, even if others have criticized you. And he said, I just have a good feeling before you even run this race that something good's about to happen. And he handed him a folded up piece of paper. He said, read that before you run. And he opened the letter. And it said, as it says in the old book, those who honor God, God will honor. And God honored him by enabling him to sprint a 400 meter race, which virtually nobody could ever be able to do that. I'm telling you that story today to say, in all of our lives, and I think this is probably why so many people came forward in the first service and got saved and joined the church and made decisions. And I'm praying that the exact same thing happens in this service. That's God's business. We'll wait and see. That's between God and you. We all have convictions. But the question is, are we willing to stand for our convictions even when it's not an easy thing to do? And when we do, do you know what happens? Other people are watching. Other people are blessed. And by our countenance, and by our confidence, and by our compassion, and by our conviction, other people are attracted to Jesus Christ because of the Jesus Christ they see living in us. Well, that story about Eric Liddell moves me because it's a beautiful story about a man who took a stand because of his conviction, because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And that stand cost him something, 
But in the end, God gave him something so much greater, not only a, a gold medal in the 400 meters, but God gave him a legacy, and we're still talking about him a hundred years later. And so today, I'm encouraging you to take a stand for Jesus Christ. If you've never given your heart to him, I encourage you to ask him to save you today. If you've done that, but you've never confessed Christ openly and publicly, I'm encouraging you to go to church today or soon, whenever you can, and confess Christ openly and publicly in the presence of that body of believers. Take a stand for Jesus Christ. He'll bless you, and he'll honor you for that. Thanks for listening to Peace by Believing today. I hope you have a great week, and I hope this program has been a blessing to you. Peace by Believing is an extension of the ministry of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. If you would like to grow in your relationship with God, we have several booklets online for you to read or download. To find them, go to our website, peacebybelieving.org, click on the Spiritual Growth tab, and scroll down to the booklet section. If the ministry of Peace by Believing has been a blessing to you, please email us at info at peacebybelieving.org. We pray that you have a blessed week.